have your Bibles, and I trust that you brought them with you to church this evening, open them to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 is where we will be this evening, and we will be for the next several Wednesday nights. I do not intend to rush through this book, but uh, to plod, as it were, through it. And the uh, word that we're using, or the title that we've given this particular sermon series is steady, which is kind of explains the book of Colossians. It's not a very attractive word. It's not a very awe-inspiring word. In fact, if you were to ask someone to describe a person to you, and they told you, well, they're just plain steady, you'd probably be unimpressed with that. But for the sake of the book of Colossians, I think it's an apt word. It's a good word to use because if you are a person who understands words or looks up their meanings or their definitions, steady has with it this mind of being at a fixed point, one that is constantly unmoved. And so I want us to understand the book of Colossians in light of the word steady. Um, You notice we've brought the pulpit back out. We're going back verse by verse through books of the Bible. This is the regular diet of our ministry to be going verse by verse through books of the Bible. We've taken a break to do things like skeptical, a a series on relationships. For those of you who haven't forgotten, I don't know how you could. I still haven't. The uh, the 14 weeks we spent in the book of Hosea, um, you're glad that we're maybe in a New Testament book. So, With your Bibles hopefully now open to the book of Colossians, I invite you to stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of the word as we read verses 1 and 2. Let's listen to what the word of the Lord has to say. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us pray together. Father, we bow before you humbly tonight, recognizing that this word is a gift from you. We can hardly think of today, specifically, without thinking that over 500 years now, we are removed from a long long line of theologians who've been committed to your word, but not just theologians, God, not just pastors and not just preachers, but God, if we could put it this way, regular people who have built their life on the only unshakable firm foundation of your word. And so tonight, as we prepare to walk through this book, I ask that our hearts would be sensitive, not to my words, Father, but to your words. Not to my thoughts, but to your thoughts. Not to my applications, but to what your word is calling us to do. For Father, our desire tonight is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we're praying and hoping and asking that you would do that through your word, specifically the book of Colossians. So in the weeks to come, may we gather together expecting you to work through your word. And I am asking that you would work through me as I try at my best to get out of the way and let the word do the work. It's in your son's name we pray. 
Amen. You may be seated. You know, as I was getting ready to think about bringing and introducing the book of Colossians, I was reminded of um, stories that I had heard in the past of pilots who uh, would go up in their plane and they had up to this particular point in time in their life with their small little planes uh, driven or flown those planes by sight, um, not required to use an instrument panel, if you know anything about planes, uh, but just kind of drove, flew, moved around, even on the ground, and then flying through the air by feel. And what's funny is when a young pilot goes into heavy cloud cover for the first time, and is required to use their instrument panels to fly, a lot of times what will end up happening on the course of the flight is they will not trust their instruments and they will make minor adjustment after minor adjustment after minor adjustment based on how they feel, only to come out of that heavy cloud cover completely upside down. Which is terrifying and reminds me why I only fly commercially. I actually don't fly, I drive. I'm a Midwesterner, so what are you kidding me? It's only a 15-hour drive. Like, we can do that in a day. And when I was thinking about that, I'm like, what? I don't know, maybe you're not like this, but I'm the person who's like, I wonder what causes that. And then an hour later, I've read like eight journal articles on the Internet and a bunch of blogs by a bunch of moms who fly their kids from school to school. But I found out that what this is called is it's an effect called spatial disorientation you may say okay who gives a rip about that well you do if you fly because once an aircraft enters into conditions where the pilot is forced to use his instruments rather than what he can see a drift can take place in his inner ear or her inner ear and if the pilot is not proficient or does not know how to use the instrument panel well, what ends up happening is they make these small, minor adjustments, and what ends up happening is the uh, pilot enters into what is referred to as a graveyard spiral. Now, I'm not a, a, a mechanic of airplanes. I am not a pilot. But if you tell me that our aircraft is currently entering into a graveyard spiral, I can assure you that I don't think that that's a good thing. It is not. A graveyard spiral normally means you've entered into a spiral, and the first word announces where your next uh, mailing address will be in a graveyard, which then made me terrified to fly. I'm certainly glad that we're driving to Michigan for Thanksgiving. But during the entire time of the flight, leading up to and during the maneuvers that are taking place, the pilot is completely unaware that he is turning, believing that he is maintaining a straight flight. He thinks he's headed in a direction that he's supposed to be going, only to end up learning too late that he's headed to his own death. And that is an apt description of what's taking place at Colossians. In the city of Colossae, the Apostle Paul is writing to people who are being influenced by a type of spatial disorientation. And not the type of spatial disorientation that's going to lead to them crashing their planes, 
because if you know anything about the first century, they didn't have airplanes. I know that's really shocking to you tonight. But what is happening is they're being misled about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And because of that, are headed in a downward spiral that will lead to their impending spiritual death. I think if we're not careful, we can be the same way. People who think we know what we're talking about when it comes to Christ, only to be made weak and grave in spiritual and theological danger. And so as we get ready to go through the book of Colossians, there's a couple things that I just think we have to do to set up our remaining our remainder of our time together in this book. And that first and foremost is to set the stage or to set what we might call the background of the book. And so that's where we're going to start. Obviously, to any person who reads the book of Colossians, we see in verse number one, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. The author of this particular book is none other than the Apostle Paul. And the date for his writing is somewhere between 60 and 62 AD. So very much the first century church. Now, if you're like me, when I read the Bible, because I don't live in the hemisphere where the biblical authorship takes place, there sometimes can be a disconnect from how I understand Scripture. Because I don't really know where this is. I haven't been to Colossae. I'm not planning on taking a trip there anytime soon unless somebody wants to fund it. But even then, I'm nervous to go. You say, David, why are you nervous to go? Well, I want to show you um, some pictures. You can't really see it, but here's the then biblical world. And that little circle that I hand drew on a PowerPoint slide is around the city of Colossae. And the city of Colossae itself is about 11 miles uh, away from Laodicea. So it's very close, if you know, the seven churches inside of Laodicea, which is the next picture that we'll show. And that little arrow that's driven, uh, written, driven, whatever, from the right side of the screen to the left is the distance between Colossae and Ephesus and Laodicea, respectively. Ephesus is believed to be the city out of which Colossae is planted. Epaphras takes the gospel to Colossae. Now you say, okay, great, you showed us these biblical maps. Well, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I brought a modern map. So this is a map of Turkey, which should tell you where Colossae is in relation to it. It's very much the part of the Middle East. Just as a political side note, whenever we start talking about the turmoil that takes place inside the Middle East, and we don't know exactly how to deal with it, and so sometimes our response is to do grave and dangerous harm. Just remember, this is where we get our Bible from. This is where it comes from. This is our heritage. These are our ancestors. These are the people who've paid a grave cost. So you can see that Colossae is located in modern-day Turkey. should help you as you think about at least where this city is, and you can go online and read all of those wonderful things about the city. But the reason that why the Apostle Paul writes the book of Colossians is he wants to remind these believers in this particular church about the need for their life to be centered on Christ. It's a, a fairly young congregation, which should appeal to us as a younger portion of our church's congregation. And here's 
what Dick Lucas says about this particular congregation. The danger for these particular enthusiastic young converts comes from error within the church, teaching that is largely, even emphatically, Christian, but which has been influenced more than it knows by the spirit of the age. In other words, the same temptation that exists for you and me to be more influenced by the world than we are by Christ is exactly the reason why Paul writes to Colossians. I was very encouraged by because a lot of times pastors stand in pulpits and they try to show you how relevant the Bible is. And in so showing you how relevant the Bible is, they undercut the need for the Bible and its relevance. This speaks to a current issue that we are even experiencing inside of our understanding of Scripture. Our tendency to allow the world to impact us more than we realize. And then we slowly drift from being centered on Christ to being centered on something that is air quotes, Christian. We often hear people say, this is a Christian way of understanding things, only to realize it's not, in fact, at all Christian. And you're like, how did we get here? You only need to go to a Christian bookstore in the city to see this. Books about people who aren't Christ followers, And their biographies are being sold in Christian bookstores because they have a good moral story. I think you and I don't realize at times how much we're influenced by the spirit of this age and not by Christ. And the decisions that we make and the places that we go and the things that we see and do and the things that we say and the people that we are. See, here's what has happened in this first century Greco-Roman world, we use this technical term, theologians will use it, it's called syncretism. It's this idea that the East and the West, their ways and lines of thinking have become merged, and so it's a little bit this, and it's a little bit this. It's like that friend that you may have run into, who's like a practicing Jewish Buddhist. You ever run into a person like this? Like, David, I just want you to know, like, I appreciate how religious you are. I appreciate the fact that you're a minister. Uh, and that's great. But I'm, I am a, a, a Jewish Buddhist, and I just don't see any way forward for me. And I'm thinking in my brain, I don't see any way forward for you in your current system of belief. Two diametrically opposed religions coming together, and that's who you are. Maybe a good way to describe syncretism would be it's the equivalent of being a Chicago Cardinals fan or really liking water and oil together a jumbo shrimp if you would like just never been I get weirded out by the way when I see that and then I have to order it because I just want to know what a jumbo shrimp looks like and then I'm like I don't know that I want to eat this because the only way a shrimp got this size is if they injected hormones into it and who knows how tastes good with ketchup Here's the problem, if I'm just being honest. and the re- I, I mean, I pray before I, I pick a book. I really try to seek the Lord out into what he would have for us 
to, to walk through as a college ministry, and I, I really try to figure out what is the next right step for us. And as I prayed and was kept leading to this book, I'm like, I don't understand why. And then I got into the study this week and was beginning to prepare this particular sermon. And I think this is apt for us, not just as a college ministry, but for us as a generation. A generation that is far too easily satisfied with bland Christianity. A nickel's worth of Christ and 95 cents of entertainment. We're satisfied with allusions to the Bible rather than the Bible itself. We're satisfied with knowing about Christ, but we don't know him personally. That's the danger of the Colossian heresy, and that's the danger for us even 2,000 years later. So if we're going to understand the book, we have to understand the background, but we also need to understand who is actually sending this letter, which leads us into our second thought. Who is the sender of this letter? You said, David, that you said the author is the Apostle Paul. Well, let's look at verse number one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Here's what the Apostle Paul makes clear. This is not his message. You say, David, how do you know this? Well, he says, Paul, an apostle, an apostolos, a messenger, a carrier, a sent one by God. This is, Paul is using this language to key his readers into. I'm not writing this of my own ideas. I'm not writing this of my own uh, wits. I'm not writing this of my own makeup. I didn't just go, well, you know, the Colossians might need some help, so... Maybe we'll sit down at this desk, we'll write them a little letter, they'll be encouraged, they'll move on, and the like. No, he is communicating, I am an apostle, I'm a messenger. Who, of whom? Look, of Jesus Christ. It says that in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he goes even further. A lot of times, here's what happens. We read the Bible, we read it so quickly, we don't pull apart the different words that are being used. He's an apostle, he's a messenger of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This is not my message. It comes from Christ and God has ordained it. So don't go, oh, geez, these are wonderful words of Paul. These are the words of God. He is the one who is sending this, this letter and this message to the Colossians. A lot of times we read our Bibles, we're like, well, Paul is so wise. Well, Paul is incredibly wise. But also, it helps to be more wise when you're writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It helps if God is the one who's penning the letter, if he's breathing out the words through his human author to communicate a message. I feel a lot more confident with Paul's words than I do with my own. And not because they're Paul's words, because they're ultimately from God. And Timothy is included here. We see Timothy, our brother. Paul has, if you do your Bible history, Paul's never been to actually visit the Colossian church. And Timothy had zero conduct, contact with the Colossian church. So why is Timothy included in this particular letter? Well, it's likely that the Apostle Paul dictated this letter to Timothy, who wrote it, and Paul signed it in chapter 4. But it would just be the end of his letter because they didn't go write this letter in chapter 1. Okay, that seems far enough. Chapter 2. 
just in case you are wondering, the original manuscripts have no verse markings. They're just there to help us know where we need to go on a Sunday morning when the pastor says we're going to look at such and such a chapter and such and such a verse. So Timothy is included because of his role as a fellow encourager. Paul is in prison at this particular time, which is kind of odd to think that here's somebody who's in prison writing a letter to a church to encourage them. You'd think it'd be the opposite way. Shouldn't the Colossians be sending mail to Paul? Like, gee, Paul, we hope you're doing well. How's prison? Are the people there nice? Are you getting along with all the other kids? Those types of questions. We would assume that that's what's taking place. But once again, the testimony of Scripture is that the Apostle Paul cares deeply for these churches and as such is sending a message to them. Who's he going to send it by? Well, he's actually going to send it through his servant, Epaphras. Verse 7, as you learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, the one who planted the church is going to carry this letter back to this fledgling congregation to encourage them to be centered on Christ. I want to stop here because a lot of times we do these overview sermons and we like, oh, there's a lot of good information. But I want us to stop here and ask ourselves this question. Do you recognize in your own life and in your own devotion time that the teaching and the writing of Scripture is not from humans but God to you about how you should live? So when you sit down in the morning or in the afternoon or in the evening to do your devotions or your quiet time, you're not cracking open a book that some guys put together and it's like, here's how you should live. But rather, this is actually a living, breathing book that's active and powerful and should be stirring you up. Is it just like reading an email? I don't, nobody reads a newspaper anymore. That illustration, the only thing that the Springfield News Leader is fit for is to be burned. That's not even because of the content. The grammar is just poor. Whatever it is that you read, your mom blogs or I don't know. We're so flippant, and I think it, I think this is the reason why. I think we're flippant with reading the Bible because we have so much access to it. I've got 83 English translations of the Bible on my phone. I've got 14. And if you're like me, I have a problem buying Bibles. If, if I can confirm this for you at, at, at dinner tonight, I have a problem buying books. And then I have a, I don't know if it's really a problem to buy Bibles, but I probably do. At any point in time, I can walk into my office. I could walk into my office right now and I could pull off a Hebrew, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Three different Greek New Testaments, an ESV, a NASB, a New King James, a couple of CSVs, a couple of study Bibles. I mean, I've got at least 10 Bibles in my office. Meanwhile, halfway across the world, people who have never heard the name of Jesus have no Bible in their own native tongue. And we go, well, it's really hard to get in the Bible in the morning because, you know, sleep and everything. I think we've lost our awe of Scripture. We've lost our awe of this is communicated. This is divine revelation. This is 
special revelation to us about how we can know Christ, how we can be saved from our sins, how we can live godly in this present and dark age. And we don't consult it. It's not a regular part of our day. And we go glibly by in our week without ever consulting it. And if we do consult it, we're not willing to submit to it. Oh, this is good, David. Just, just, I just want teach all the good stuff out of here. I, I just really want. Where's all the encouraging stuff about if you just follow the Lord, He's like gonna give you a bunch of money and stuff. You know, where, where, where's, where's all the fun stuff? Where like following Christ is like uh, uh, a holiday. this week because I think we have become so accustomed to having God's word at our fingertips. And what's that? What is that verse? You know, it's somewhere in the Bible. It says this. Oh, shoot. 97% of the evangelical workforce serves the top 3% of the evangelical evangelized world. In other words, 97% of the people that serve people on the globe do it in North America, specifically the United States. You're like, feed me. Feed me. Tickle my ears. Make me feel good. We've lost our willingness to submit and sit under the regular I know it because we don't preach the Bible globally. I know it because it's far easier to get a crowd together to give away a car at a church on a Sunday morning than it is to say, oh, by the way, we're going to be going over this particular passage of Scripture. So that's why we've said as a church, really good for a guy like me who's not flashy nor creative to be able to come in here week after week and tell you the only thing I have for you is the word of God if you want to be entertained if you want me to tell some jokes if you want to feel better I don't know what I do know is that God is here quote Francis Schaeffer and he is not silent. He's not silent because he's given us his word. And so as Paul draws the attention of the Colossians, he is reminding them that ultimately this message is from God, which begs the question for us. When we go through this book over the next few months, are we going to submit to it on the basis of how well I preach it or on the basis of the fact that it is the word of God and regardless of whether or not I knock it out of the park or hit a single down the first baseline, it doesn't matter. It's the word of God, and it should be submitted to. That's convicting for me because it drives how I should handle it. Verse 2, though, cues us into our last group. 
We looked at the background. We understand who's sending the message. It's not God. It's the apostle, or it's not Paul. It's the not Paul. It's God. It's a message from him to the people of Colossae. So who are these people? Look at verse number two. This would be encouraging for us. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. The Apostle Paul uses the word hagias here, which means holy, to communicate a unique aspect of their condition. Meaning that they are believers and identifying them as saints who are in Christ. Three more times through the book of Colossians, all in chapter 1, verse 4, verse 12, verse 26. Paul is going to refer to these Colossians as saints. And a lot of times we go, why does he call them saints? Because he wants them to be reminded of something that binds them together. Mainly and most importantly, their conversion to Jesus Christ. He refers to them as faithful brethren as well. This idea of Delvoy to me. You read that word and go, really? It seems odd. Only brothers? What about sisters? Well, for those of you who might be concerned, this is actually a gender neutral word in the Greek New Testament. Referring to brothers and sisters. So some of your translations may say brothers and sisters. And that's perfectly acceptable. Because what Paul is saying is to the saints, to those believers, whether they be male or female, you are in Christ. This is your identifying marker that you are in Christ. Notice that he doesn't say to the saints and faithful brethren in Colossae. He eventually gets to Colossae. But he says in Christ before he says in Colossae. We, we gloss over this. I do. Maybe, maybe we don't. Maybe when I'm preaching, I'm just preaching out of my own conviction that I move too quickly. We gloss over this. Yeah, yeah, saints. Let's get to the good stuff. Like start telling them where the doctrine's off, how to correct their theology, all of these different things. The reason why the Apostle Paul presses home that they are in Christ before they're in Colossae is because he wants them to understand that their citizenship in Christ is more important and significant than their citizenship in Colossae. I just want to say this tonight. It's probably the wrong time of the year to say it. But I'm okay with that. I've never been one to shy away from saying the uncomfortable statement, so... Your citizenship in Christ is far more significant and more important than your citizenship in America. And it's far more important that you live godly for Christ than you elect the right people to office. Christians can be very dangerous around election time of losing their prophetic voice because of their political voice. I don't jolly well care do at some level if Claire McCaskill gets another term in office. That impacts us, yes. But what impacts us far more than that is how we live for Christ on a regular basis. 
I think Christians who are gifted, the Apostle Paul says this to the Romans, that they are to live out as good citizens in the land in which they've been blessed to live in. And so what is required of a good citizen is to exercise their Christianity inside of the public domain and inside of the public sphere. But we cannot sacrifice our prophetic voice calling for this particular nation, this particular state, this particular city to fall on its knees and give its heart and life to Christ on the altar of our guy getting to be the guy who runs the show. It's very unpopular. But it's very true. And I want us to raise up a generation of Christians who are active Americans, but their activity as Americans is drowned out by their activity as Christians. That we be far more known for our love of Christ than we are of an elephant or a mule. Or if you're like, well, I'm a libertarian. Great, I'm an independent. Welcome to the party. Paul drives this point home, and I think it's timely for us to recognize, where does your citizenship lie? Maybe you're like, well, I don't give a, a rip about a politics. I don't give a rip about politics, right? But your identity is consumed by the job you have, the person you're dating, the amount of money you make, the school that you're attending, the degree that you're getting. Your identity is rooted in something other than Christ. The Apostle Paul presses on the Colossians to understand the greatest identifying marker of who they are and who they're to be about is the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to challenge us as a college ministry to be far more consumed with our identity of being in Christ than we are about where we're from or what we do or who we vote for. He closes this particular greeting by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not a typical Pauline greeting. The idea of using grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grounds the Apostle Paul in his rich love of orthodox theology and his desire to push the Colossians to it. Grace and peace is not the idea of have a little more grace and everything's all nice and calm. It's the idea of the Lord Jesus Christ provides grace for you and brings a unique level of peace into your life. And by using those words, he communicates as such to them and then reminds them where that grace and where that peace comes from. It comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father as the one who sends the Son and the Son is the one who submits to the will of the Father and goes to the cross on our behalf and purchases on that hill called Calvary our redemption through his death and vindicates it through his resurrection and the Holy Spirit which will seal them until the day of redemption. Here Paul is unequivocally ending his greeting by saying Jesus Christ is the center of everything. Steady hands, steady feet. What is your life centered on tonight? The grades, the jobs, the money, the relationships, the sports, the political arena, 
whatever it might be. What is it centered on? If it's not centered on Christ, the Apostle Paul in these first two verses is already calling us back to being centered on Christ. And so the next three chapters is going to push us collectively to be centered on Christ. Now maybe tonight you're sitting in here and going to church maybe for a long time. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been to church. I don't know. But you know that your life has never, ever been centered on Christ. It's not that you've deviated from the path. It's not that you've changed the course of your life. Is it never was centered on Christ to begin with. Tonight, you can know what it means to be centered completely, unequivocally on Christ. But for those of us who know Christ, who are in him, who claim his name, How are we doing at centering everything on him? Maybe tonight our right response is that we pray, Lord, moving forward, I want everything, all of it, to be centered on you and none of it on me. Friends, I remind you of this particular quote, and with that I will pray and we will move into our time of invitation and response. But the reason why the Apostle Paul is pushing us to be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ is because the the Apostle Paul understands this. Only two options are on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing yourself. And it's impossible to please God while you please yourself. It's an impossibility to be centered on Christ and be centered on yourself. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the Crave College Ministry Sermons from Crossway Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. For more information about Crave, you can connect with us online at crosswaybc.org forward slash college or on social media at Crossway Crave. Again, thanks for listening, and we hope you have a great day.